0: there. I'm Andrea Koppel and it's time for coffee. The podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of t for c If you're a political science or public affairs major, or you think you might be interested in getting into politics or perhaps teaching political science at the university level, then this is the episode for you, because my next guest is an expert on U.S. elections, including the influence of political advertising on voting behavior, on public opinion, and on political communications, among other topics. But before I introduce you to Professor Lynn Vavrick, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek at the guests and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org the number four, coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there on the home page. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Professor Lynn Vavrick, an award-winning author and the Marvin Hoffenberg Professor of American Politics and Public Policy at UCLA, where she teaches courses on campaigns, elections, and public opinion. She's also a contributing columnist to The Upshot at The New York Times and co-author of Identity Crisis, the 2016 presidential campaign and the battle for the meaning of America. Her 2012 award-winning campaign book, The Gamble, was described by Nate Silver as the definitive account of the 2012 election and political consultants on both sides of the aisle refer to her work on political messaging as required reading. In 2015, she was awarded an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship to investigate the influence of political advertising. And she served on the advisory boards of both the British and American National Election Studies. Professor Vavrik, Lynn, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I am. Great. Well, before we dig into what you do in your current job as a college professor and how you built your career. I would love to focus on what is happening right now at this very minute here in the U.S. because it isn't very often that I'm having one of these caffeinated career conversations with a guest at a time when current events are super relevant to their day job. And that is absolutely the case right now. For our listeners, it is the last week of January 2020 and the impeachment trial of President Trump is winding down. In fact, the president's legal team is presenting its defense of Mr. Trump as we speak this very minute. And we are also just days away from the Iowa caucus and I guess roughly nine months away from when Americans are going to go to the polls to decide whether or not President Trump will be reelected for another four years. So what are your thoughts right now, Lynn, as you kind of take in all of these moving pieces?
1: Well, there's a lot going on just information overload. If you're a political junkie, there's not enough time to consume all the politics news. But I think most people aren't junkies. And so they get little tidbits here and there as a byproduct of their daily life. Most people right now don't know how many days away we are from the Iowa caucus. And it is right around the corner. So I think for a lot of people in the world, the information environment probably hasn't changed that much. But for people who are very interested, it's nonstop.
0: You are teaching right now America in the 1960s. Is there anything that you see from back in the 60s that is resonating today in this current political climate?
1: Oh, absolutely. Everything Old is New Again is kind of a good chapter title for where we are right now. The 1960s was a period of emerging identity politics, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the free speech movement. Then after that period was in its heyday, there was a backlash. And then we got into the Nixon years. And that's pretty much what's happening right now. We had the election of Barack Obama as president of the United States, lots of advances in terms of rights and identities over the last 10 years. And now There's a pushback from people in the country who are saying, hey, this is all moving too fast. I don't understand how to live in this world that's being created. And that is exactly what was happening in the mid to late 60s and into the 70s.
0: So what are you focused on right now as a political scientist? You said that most people aren't political junkies. They're just picking up little snippets here and there, but you are a political junkie.
1: So what is of most interest to you right now? Of most interest to me right now is what is gonna happen with the Democratic nominating process. This contest is very close among the four front runners. That's Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Pete Buttigieg. And they offer very different things. And I'm just going to be really interested in seeing where we are three weeks from now and how this all sorts out.
0: So, among those remaining Democratic candidates, and I recognize I'm asking you to look into your crystal ball and things are going to change. But do you think there is anyone among those four remaining Democratic candidates, or maybe more than one, who actually has the potential to be President Trump?
1: Oh, sure. They all have the potential to beat the incumbent president. It's just a matter of will they execute and take that path that most likely leads them to defeating President Trump. Candidates make mistakes all the time in their campaigns. So I think they all have the potential to.
0: In your book, Identity Crisis, the 2016 presidential campaign and the battle for the meaning of America, you and your co-author make the case that it wasn't financial or economic hardship that propelled Donald Trump into the White House, not his economic hardship, but rather that within (laughs) the American economic system or the way that Americans were feeling about their pocketbooks, but rather the fact that President Trump at the time, candidate Trump, was able to capitalize on divisions and differences among the American electorate along racial and ethnic lines. Do you think that race, immigration, religion, any of those topics will continue to be the most relevant wedge issues this November?
1: It's hard to say. It's important to keep in mind that Donald Trump did not create those attitudes. People have attitudes about politics and society living in the background of their day-to-day lives. What Donald Trump did in 2016 was activate those attitudes and sort of bring them to the forefront of people's decisions. So you can think of the vote choice like a recipe. We're baking a cake that is ultimately going to be our vote choice. And there's a recipe. Which things are the most prominent ingredients and which are the least? We're always going to have milk and flour and sugar and eggs, but how much of each? And what candidates do is they can come along and they can say, milk, milk, put milk in. Then we'll put more milk in. So candidates can activate these ingredients to change the recipe. And that's what Trump did in 2016. Everything he talked about, he inflected with identity. Even the economy, when he talked about it, immigrants are coming for your job. He inflected it with identity. It remains to be seen whether he or his opponent will do that in 2020. He's sitting on a good economy. He ought to just talk about that. He does not need to go back to his playbook from 2016 to win. He can use a different playbook. Now, whether he will is an open question.
0: Which ingredients do you think
1: Democrats should be pulling to the fore? So, if the economy continues to grow, that will be beneficial to the incumbent party, that will be beneficial to Donald Trump. So, that means the Democrat, whoever that person is, has to refocus the election off of the economy and on to something else. So what is that something else? It's easy to see what their stories will be. It's probably not going to be the same story. right? Candidates are unique. They come with constraints. So each one of them is going to look different standing next to Donald Trump. If you're Pete Buttigieg, you're going to weave a story about a new generation of leadership passing the baton. This is kind of John Kennedy in 1960. We stand today on the edge of a new frontier. He can weave all sorts of policy ideas into that framework, refocus the election around that, that dimension of choice. If you're Elizabeth Warren, it'll be corruption. People in Washington are corrupt, and she'll paint Donald Trump as corrupt, even though he's new to Washington. If you're Joe Biden, it's gonna be experience. We see what happens when we put someone with no experience in the White House, put someone with a lot. So you can sort of see how these things should coalesce, but that will be the job of that Democratic nominee will be to refocus the election onto something that benefits them more than it benefits Trump and that they can make more important than the economy.
0: Gotcha. And would you say with Bernie Sanders it's also
1: experience? No. I think that his story will be more similar to Elizabeth Warren's, but with a different kind of melody. So he'll hit the corruption notes, I think. But then also the system is broken. We have to blow it up and start over. We need to go from the beginning and rebuild the whole thing.
0: So as our listeners can tell very easily, you are an expert in political messaging, in survey research, in American politics, and you are a professor of political science and communication studies. I'm curious, why is it political science and communications? Because usually you see media and communications or public relations and communications. Why group political science with communication
1: studies. So this is purely organizational in terms of the way the university is set up. I have a faculty appointment in the political science department, but then I have what is called a courtesy appointment in the communication department, which means that they don't review my promotions, but they want me to be a part of their department. So I am appointed in both departments, which means I am a professor of political science and a professor of communication by courtesy. Okay, got it. So it's kind of like a dotted line. It's just a different unit at the university, literally. (laughs) Okay.
0: You have been teaching at UCLA now for almost 20 years. Can you take us
1: into a typical day or a typical week for you on the job? Yeah. I wish there were typical days, but I would say the most common day goes something like this. I wake up in the morning, I have my cup of coffee and take care of email, logistics, anything that's come in overnight that I can quickly get out of the inbox. I treat my inbox as my to-do list. So I am not one of these people with 10,000 emails in my inbox. If I have 15 emails in my inbox, I get really, really anxious. So I try to get rid of the stuff that's easy to get rid of in the morning. Then I get ready, I show up at work and I typically teach one class in the morning. So show up in the classroom at nine, inevitably the AV equipment doesn't work and I'm panicking to make that happen. 10 students will run down with some kind of question that they think is like the most important question in the world at that moment when I clearly cannot get the AV equipment to run to give the lecture to 300 people I'm about to give. So that's all happening. Then I give that lecture. That'll be like 9.30 to 10.45. And then afterward, people will come down with lots of questions. It's probably 11 o'clock before I get out of that room. Then I'll walk back to my office. By the time I do that, it's 11.15. I'll run into four or five colleagues on the way to my office. So then it's noon. It's lunchtime. Have some lunch, come back. And sometimes I teach again at 1245. Sometimes I teach at two. But the next thing will be another class. So you got to prep that class and then go to that class, do the same thing again. And then by the time that's done, it's two o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon. Maybe I'll meet for a half an hour each with two or three graduate students to talk about their research, maybe have to go to a committee meeting, a department meeting, someone's dissertation defense. And as you can see, I still haven't had any time to do my own work. (laughs) So if I've got to write a New York Times column or work on a research article or do some data analysis, all of that is getting pushed until after dinner. And so that's kind of how it goes. How
0: do you prepare for your lectures? And I'm guessing if it's a course you've taught, Many times before. You've already got your notes. I don't know if you go by outline or how you prefer to lecture if you have slides, but how do you create the content for your course?
1: So I try to use two guiding principles for every lecture I give. The first is what is the number one and number two takeaway that I want people to leave the room with today? And then the second is what is the narrative arc? of the lecture that I'm going to use to keep them paying attention and convey these two things in a way that they are going to remember. So I really try to treat every lecture like a little TED talk. I start every lecture. This is like one of the best pieces of advice anyone ever gave me about teaching. Tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you told them. So those are words to live by. I start every lecture with, here's what we're going to do today. One, two, three. Then I do it. And I finish every lecture with, here's what we did today. One, two, three. But every lecture has a motivating question. And that's how I get into it. And then there's usually like a vignette where I illustrate why this is important. And then I usually try to set the scene. I use a lot of pictures. I do it all with PowerPoint. I don't have any notes. And then I make my claim for what I think the answer is. I show some evidence. And then I suggest ways that this might not be right, but why it's important and we should keep thinking about it and what the next steps in thinking about it might be. And then I close it up.
0: Have you ever been surprised and perhaps even changed your thinking or your analysis based on the feedback that you've gotten from students during a lecture?
1: You mean the questions that people yeah, are asking? The questions. I'm just curious. Yeah. Has that ever happened? Almost always. It is hard to know what people don't know. And so the best example of this, I teach at one of the world's best universities. The students are very good. And still, one year I was giving a lecture on civil rights and I was talking about the struggle in the South for voting rights for black Americans. And a student asked me, Professor Vavrick, I'm just blown away by this. Did all this really happen? Now we get a lot of international students. And so it's, it's possible that maybe this person didn't go to high school in the U S but that really knocked me back. I thought, you know, wow, I got to slow this down. And first of all, do they think I'm making this up? You know, like, what do you mean? Did this really happen? Like I just told you about it, but it's sometimes hard to know how much they don't know.
0: Oh my gosh. That is kind of stunning. And yet in some ways, not surprising because of the amount of pushback that we've had from various politicians regarding fake news, you know whether or not you can believe what you read and i suppose that students could think that maybe their professors aren't necessarily sharing the facts. But
1: maybe, i hope not, but i guess you're right, it's possible. Yeah. So your CV
0: lists out all of the lectures that you've been invited to give over the years, and I'm kind of chuckling because I'm guessing the list isn't exhaustive, but it was (laughs) exhausting reading it because I counted around, I mean, it has to be about a 100 lectures that you've been invited to give. So it's fair to say you are an extremely seasoned public speaker. (laughs) What advice do you have to offer our young listeners, Lynn, about how to give a compelling speech?
1: Practice, practice, practice. There's no substitute for having confidence in what you're saying when you're standing in front of 300 people. And I can tell you, because I have been doing this for 20 years, my lecture today that I will give on civil rights, for example, we've been talking about that lecture is not changing very much. The first time I gave it, I remember being sort of so caught up in the material that I was talking about that I had to choke back the tears when I was talking about some of the things that happened to these young people who were protesting in the South. Today, I can give that lecture much more powerfully because I've done it literally 25 times. And you just become so much better at something if you do it over and over again. So if you've got to go give a big presentation, even if it's to six people, but it's your boss and your boss's boss, you better be locking yourself in your bathroom, in your apartment, practicing that thing six times before you go give it the next day. It ought to be memorized, like not literally from memory, but you ought to be able to get distracted at any moment and still keep going.
0: Oh my God. Fantastic advice. So Lynn, I just want to flashback to when you were in college, you got your bachelor's of science in political science at Arizona State University. You also studied geology and English. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? No, no, I did not.
1: You want me to tell you how that went? Absolutely. (laughs) I always tell people you have to fail a lot before you figure out exactly what it is that you want to do. And my story is exactly the same. I wanted to work in law enforcement. I wanted to be an FBI agent or a CIA agent. I wanted to do investigations, but also analysis. That didn't work out. I then thought, okay, I'll go to law school, because I knew that a lot of the analysts in the State Department were lawyers. And so I thought, I'll go to law school and protect the constitution that way. So I did that for one day and- One uh, day? One day (laughs) in law school? One day in law school. Yeah. I, I had taken graduate courses when I was an undergrad and started doing data analysis and I really liked it. And I noticed pretty quickly that I thought I might be a little bit better at it than the actual graduate students in the classes. But I had been admitted to law school and I was going. And so I went. And as I was sitting there on the first day, I really thought to myself, wow, I am never going to do data analysis again. I'm never going to think about those concepts that representation and messaging. And I really like that stuff. And I think I'm kind of good at it man, like maybe I should go to grad school and that, you know, and I just sort of had this moment and I ran to the pay phone because it was like, you know, ages ago and called my dad. And I said, you know, I think I want to get a PhD in political science instead of a JD. And to my dad's credit, he was skeptical, but supportive. And he said, all right, tell me how that's going to go. And the rest is history.
0: Oh, what a great story. So I noticed from your LinkedIn profile that <laughs> After you got your master's, you had a little break, I think, of about a year, and then you got your PhD, and you held several jobs before moving into teaching, and this includes that one year, it included doing advanced for the vice president's office during the Clinton administration. You were the executive director of campaign reform of the campaign reform task force at Princeton University, and you were the director of panel development at Polymetrics, which has since been acquired by YouGov, and it engages in survey research and analytics. What did you learn from those different positions, Lynn, if anything, that helped you when you actually started teaching?
1: Oh, when I actually started teaching, (laughs) I wasn't expecting the twist at the end. Well, really different things from all of them. But I think that anytime you can get out into the world and observe the thing that you're studying. So watching presidential candidates on the campaign trail, which is what I'm about to go do in Iowa, watching how voters react to them, all of that That's what I try to study with survey research. But when I can go out and actually watch it happen, that really informs the kind of survey questions that I write. It helps me in the creative process. And then I can bring all of that into the classroom when I try to teach students. So I would say the number one thing, no matter what you're doing, is get your hands dirty with the process that you're working in. If you're building widgets, go to the factory floor and try to build one. If you're studying campaigns, go out and travel around with a candidate. Watch them campaign. It will make you better at your job.
0: Great advice. two final time for coffee questions. These are questions I try to ask all of my guests. And this one has to do with a, a point that you made both in the Espresso Shots interview and in this interview regarding the importance of making mistakes and failing. Could you share a time in your professional life, Lynn, when you failed, when you made a huge mistake? And most importantly, how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process?
1: Yeah. When I was in graduate school, you have to do a couple of things to get a PhD. You have to complete coursework. You have to produce a piece of original research. That's your dissertation. So you have to contribute something to the research world. And in most places, you have to pass comprehensive qualifying exams. And that's how it was in my program. We had to take three of those. And I went to a very small program. It was competitive and prestigious. And the most difficult exam was this exam in political methodology, which is like statistics. And it was the most difficult exam of the ones that they offered. And then this program was known for this field. And I took that exam and I failed it. So I did not pass my third qualifying exam in graduate school. Never dawned on me that, that this was even a possibility. You know, I had pretty much gone through my whole academic career doing well. So it was a real shock and I didn't know what it meant. Part of the problem with failure is trying to figure out how to interpret it. So I didn't know if I was supposed to be concluding that I wasn't good enough to do this job, that I needed to go do something else, or whether it was just sort of, well, you didn't do very well today, you'll take it again the next time we offer it. It was a very big deal in my world and professionally. So I had to wait six months until they offered the exam again. And if you fail it again, that's it, you're out. So there was a lot of pressure. What I learned from this is there isn't a single thing about you that defines you. You get to decide how to define yourself for the world. And so if I had wanted that failure to define me, I could still be very bitter about it and think that I was treated unfairly. You know, I was the only girl in the program, whatever. I could make a million excuses for why the faculty failed me, but I get to decide how to handle it. And so I had said to myself and to my friends and roommates at the time that when I passed all my comprehensive exams, I was going to do two things. I was going to start riding horses again, and I was going to subscribe to cable television, which I'd never had in my whole life. But then I failed. I was so excited. I had gone out. I bought all this riding gear. I was very excited to start riding horses again, but then I failed. And my one friend sat me down and said to me, after like three days of sulking, he said, you know, there's no rule here. You ought to sign up for cable TV and start riding horses again. It's gonna put you in a better place to study to pass this exam again in six months. And I thought to myself, is that cheating? Rewarding myself for failure? Like that doesn't seem right. But I think he was right. I did it. And I passed the exam the next time and, you know, here I am. But that was such good advice that I got to decide how I was going to handle that failure. And I went out and didn't beat myself up over it. I just tried to understand how I could do better the next time. And it luckily all worked out. I realize it doesn't work out for everybody, but I think understanding that you have control of the next moment after the failure is really important.
0: Amazing advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I just hope our listeners appreciate hearing that even someone incredibly successful professor of political science at UCLA failed a big exam and her wonderful advice not to let it define you and just dig in. This is why grit is so important and keep moving forward. And it hasn't affected her career in the least. So final time for coffee question, Lynn, if you could go back to Arizona State University and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself?
1: I think that I would just say, slow down, just take a deep breath, the future, it's going to happen, it's, it's going to work out, and you're going to be fine. I think I spent a lot of time when I was in my 20s worried about what was going to happen to me. What was I going to do? And there is a lot of uncertainty in that period. And I get it. You don't have a lot of experience and you are unsure about all sorts of things that it would be impossible for you to know about. What's going to happen in my family? Are my parents going to be okay? Are my brothers and sisters? You know, just there's lots of uncertainty and you think about it. But I think what I sort of didn't appreciate was that dispositionally, you're the same person at 20 that you're probably going to be at 50. And so, Knowing that you get up every day when you're 20 years old and go out into the world and make stuff happen and manage your life, you're still going to be doing that when you're 30, 40, 50 and beyond, because that that is who you are and how you do your day. And so no matter what happens to you, it's all going to be okay. And I think that just would have helped me a lot when I was in my 20s.
0: Just take a deep breath.
1: Yeah. More breathing. More breathing. And the thing is, all of the angsting
0: doesn't change it anyway. Well, it doesn't help. That's for sure. It certainly (laughs) doesn't. Well, Professor Lynn Vavrick is the co-author of Identity Crisis, the 2016 presidential campaign and the battle for the meaning of America. Professor Vavrick, Lynn, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community.
1: And I have to ask, is there another book in the works? Possibly. I have a big data collection going called Nationscape, and we're interviewing a lot of people. And so, yeah, I think there might be another book.
0: Cool. Well, we will be keeping our eyes peeled for that.
1: Thank you so much. Great. You're welcome. Thank you.